passion for God and compassion for our neighbor, reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. Okay, so while you're turning to and finding Jude, verse 8, and we're going to study to verse 10, uh, I just want to begin by talking about the topic of terrorists. Now that the Taliban has taken back over Afghanistan, this subject is coming up more and more. And people are seeing that Afghanistan is going to become a breeding center for terrorists that are going to be just going around the world. And September 11th may be just like a minor thing that happened after we see what may happen with what terrorists may unleash on the world at this point. We don't know. That's in the future. But we do know that fighting terrorists and terrorism is a hard thing to do. I mean, originally, in the old-style war, everybody wore a uniform. A lot easier, right, Jake? If you see the guy wearing the uniform of the opposite team, you just point the gun and pull the trigger. That's pretty much, that's all you have to do. But not with terrorists. These guys, they like to blend in. So they're very hard to identify, hard to find, until, of course, they've unleashed their deadly plans. Isn't that what happened on September 11th? When people boarded those planes, they had no idea that terrorists are on board committed to trying to destroy the United States because they are hiding in plain sight. So terrorists are hard to fight and find because they blend in. But they're also hard to fight and find because they are really committed to their cause. Committed to their cause to the point that they're willing to kill themselves for their cause. A lot of them are suicide bombers. So like, how do you punish a guy when they've already killed themselves? How do you deter them when they were prepared to die for their cause? I mean, it's like, what do you do at that point? The only way to be able to stop terrorists is to figure out who they are ahead of schedule and derail their plans before they happen, not after they happen. No matter what you may think of our government right now, I think you have to be thankful for our government because since September 11th, our government actually has done a pretty good job of stopping the plans of terrorists to attack our country. We haven't had another event like September 11th since September 11th, because those terrorist plans have been essentially discovered and destroyed. But while our government has done a good job at this point of detecting and uh, deflecting the attacks of terrorists, in the church, we don't do a really good job at that. Now, I'm not talking about traditional terrorists. In the church, I'm talking about spiritual terrorists. People who are committed to destroying churches, committing to destroying people's faith in Christ, even committed to destroying entire denominations. And just like traditional terrorists, they don't wear a uniform that shows they're on the other side. They blend in and they fit in. And then they're also suicide bombers. They're committed not just to leaving Christ and rejecting him and going to hell themselves, but they want to take a bunch of people along with them when they detonate themselves. In fact, if you look at the American church landscape, isn't that what you find? Once major denominations, strong denominations for Jesus Christ and the light of the gospel in our country and around the world 
are nothing but smoldering remains, destroyed by t spiritual terrorists who have worked their way into the positions of leadership and into the schools of those denominations and then detonated themselves, essentially, and just taken a lot of other people with them. You recognize them because these are the people that have no problem ordaining homosexual pastors. No problem saying that Jesus isn't the only way to God. Oh, he's just one of many ways to God. The Bible, they say, oh, it has errors. It has mistakes in it. You really can't trust it. Those are the kind of people that are spiritual terrorists. The kind of people we want to avoid. When we come to the verses that we're going to be studying this morning, which is Jude, verses 8 through 10, what these verses too do is teach us how we can identify spiritual terrorists among us. How we can unmask them and see who they are before they do their deadly work of trying to destroy us along with themselves. The idea of hopefully profiling these terrorists from these verses um, is so we don't become a casualty. Before we jump into verses 8 through 10, there's two points I want to cover by way of introduction. And they're on the top of your outline. Let me just start with these, points 1 and 2. The first one is this. What is the difference between apostasy and spiritual terrorism? The reason I want to start there is because if you have been picking up commentaries or any other books that talk about the book of Jude, you will consistently, consistently see the term apostasy. They'll say it is a book about apostasy. And they're right. What is apostasy? Apostasy is someone who knows the Christian faith. And then they choose to turn around and leave the Christian faith. Apostates are those who know that the only way to be forgiven of our sin is through what Jesus Christ did on the cross. There is no other options. They know that the only way that we can experience victory in our life over the power of sin in, that is a, really alive and at work in us is through Jesus Christ. But knowing those things full well, apostates choose to leave the church and they choose to leave Jesus, the only hope they have. Well, apostasy, though, is actually sort of an umbrella term. It can cover all kinds of different ways that people leave Jesus Christ. But here in Jude, we're talking about a particular kind of apostate. A kind of apostate that I have termed for you spiritual terrorists. These are people that don't just leave Jesus Christ, but then they actually come around and go back into the church and they try and get other people to leave Jesus Christ with them. Now, that's why we've chosen the term spiritual terrorists and why we're using that. And may, you may not find that term in some of the books you read on Jude. But I thought it would be helpful to know the difference. So Jude is a book about apostasy, but it's about a specific kind of apostasy. Those people who have left Jesus but come back into the church to pull people away from Jesus. The other thing for you to know is that the book of Jude is highly structured. Oftentimes when we talk about uh, New Testament letters, we think the letters in the New Testament are casually written, like you and I would write a letter to a friend. The truth is they're not casually written. They are carefully written. And when you study these books, that is what you find. 
a lot of structure, a lot of crafting. We saw this in Jude right at the very beginning of the book. He tells us in verses 3 and 4 what is the purpose of the letter and what he wanted to accomplish with the letter. And then as we began in verses 5 through 7 that we looked at, started looking at for the last two weeks, what we see is some highly structured stuff. We're going to see three points in verses 5 through 11. He makes three points, and he supports those points, each with three examples, carefully put together. Remember in verses 5 through 7, it was all about, hey, if you turn your back on Jesus, it is not going to end well. It doesn't end well for anybody who turns their back on Jesus. And he gave three examples. Verse 5, he talks about um, the Exodus generation. They turned their back on Jesus after having been saved by Jesus. They turned on their back on Jesus ten times, it says, in the wilderness. Didn't end well for them. In fact, they all ended up dying in the wilderness, even though they made it to the edge of the promised land. And then in verse 6, he talks about the angels in heaven that rebelled against Jesus. Those who are particularly wicked have already been, since the flood, imprisoned in chains in utter darkness until the final day of judgment, he says. And then at the actual day of judgment, it will not end well for them either because the Bible says the lake of fire has been prepared by God for the devil and his angels. That's what it was made for. Of course, we learned about Sodom and Gomorrah. They turned their back on Jesus. Did not end well for them either. They, all of them perished in a literal lake of fire that prefigured the ultimate lake of fire. So Jude's point is it doesn't matter who you are. You could be God's chosen people, the Exodus generation. You could be the very angels of heaven and turn your back on Jesus. You could be Gentiles. It will not end well for you. Do not walk away from Jesus. Do not become apostate. That was his point. And then when we get into verses 8 through 10 that we're going to study today, he's going to give us three qualities of spiritual terrorists that will help us learn how we can spot them among us. We're going to see this morning, number one, they are committed to sexual immorality. Number two, they will disrespect authority. And number three, they will blaspheme angels. Next week, when we get to verse 11, he'll give us three influences of spiritual terrorists. And he'll give us three examples from the Old Testament. He'll look at Cain in the Old Testament. He'll look at Balaam. And then he'll look at Korah's rebellion. So all of a sudden, we start to see every time he makes a point, he likes to give it with three illustrations. And I say this just simply to tell you that the Word of God is not casually put together. It is carefully put together, very well structured and very well written. With that as an introduction, let's go ahead and turn to Jude, verse 8. Stand out of reverence for the Word of God. Hopefully you found your copy in your set of scriptures. Follow along with your eyes in the Word of God as I read verses 8 through 10. It says, Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, 
he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. That ends the reading of the word. You can be seated. We got some stuff, tough stuff in there, don't we? Anybody think that's got some tough stuff? Oh, yeah. But we like that tough stuff. So let's go ahead and start studying it. Let's begin with this. The point he makes here at the very outset in verse 8 is we can identify a spiritual terrorist today by studying spiritual terrorists of the past. It's where he says this. Yet in like manner, similar manner, these people also, then he moves on to these modern people he's talking about, rely on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. What he says is you look at the spiritual terrorists of the past, that will help you build a character profile of what the spiritual terrorists will look like in the present among you and in the future. And he's going to say that after I look at the past, he's going to look at the Exodus generation, the angels who rebelled, Sodom and Gomorrah, you'll see some qualities in their spiritual rebellion that will forecast spiritual terrorists among you when they will do spiritual rebellion. One, he says, for instance, is sexual immorality, defiling the flesh. Did the Exodus generation do that at all? Were they uh, sexually immoral people? Oh, you guys remember when Moses went up Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments? And he came down. He was a little upset. Remember that? Well, you remember what the people were doing down below? They didn't, hadn't just made a golden calf. But as we're going to see in a little bit, they were intentionally living a very sexually loose and immoral lifestyle around the golden calf. Some of you are going, really? Wait, you'll see that I'm telling you. That's the truth. Did the Exodus generation reject authority? Remember Korah's rebellion against Moses? God had established Moses as the authority. But they were people that led a rebellion against Moses' authority? Hmm. How about the angels in heaven? Was there sexual immorality going on with them, the ones who fell to earth? We studied that two weeks ago. Remember in Genesis 6 it says, When the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive, they took any they want. Yes. There was sexual immorality in their rebellion. Did they respect the authority set over them, like Jesus in heaven? Absolutely not. They rebelled against him. Sodom and Gomorrah. A lot of a sexual immorality there, all over the place. Did they respect authority? Well, what authority was there in their life? We read this last week in Genesis chapter 19. Number one, it was their own consciences. They admitted they knew what they were doing with homosexual gang rape was completely and totally wrong, but they did it anyway. They also knew that they, when Lot told them this was not God's will for their life, they rejected that anyway. So we see consistently what happens is if you look at the people of the past who were, 
who were spiritual terrorists, apostates, you can build a character profile of what spiritual terrorists, apostates, will look like in the present and the future. Now, let's go a little further. It says spiritual terrorists, one thing we can know about them is they will typically rely on their dreams for authority. We get that right there in verse 8. He's talking about this, relying on their dreams, and then he goes on to talk about these other character qualities. Spiritual terrorists, as I said, will rely on their dreams for authority. They'll use their dreams to justify their sexually immoral lifestyle. They'll use their dreams to justify their rebellious lifestyle. Here's where it gets a little interesting. It says they will use their dreams. The Greek word used here is a very unique word. It's a long word. It's not the typical word used for dreams in the Greek um, throughout the rest of the New Testament. In fact, this particular word is only used in one other place in the New Testament. That's Acts chapter 2, verse 17. In that passage, Peter is quoting Joel. He's quoting Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 29. Do you remember this? He says, in that time, your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. What we know is the kind of dream that is being talked about here is what is a, called a prophetic dream or a prophetic vision. The kind of dream where people say, well, God spoke to me. Or an angel spoke to me. In other words, one of the ways you can recognize the spiritual terrorist among you is they will say, oh, God told me this. God spoke this to me, or an angel spoke this to me. What they will do is claim to have a connection with God where God speaks to them in a way that you don't have because God doesn't speak to you. So therefore, they set themselves up as an authority that is greater than you. They try to set themselves up as an authority that is ultimately over you because God hasn't spoken to you in dreams and visions but he's spoken to me in dreams, in visions. You say, well, does this really happen? Let me give you a modern day example. You ever heard of Joseph Smith, founder of the Mormon church? You know how that whole thing starts? Oh, God spoke to me. An angel named Moroni spoke to me, and he told me where I'm supposed to go to get these golden plates, and he told me what I'm supposed to do, and he told me about translating these whole things, and by the way, I met God the Father, and I met God the Son, and other people, it didn't happen to me, and it's like, oh, God's speaking to me, all about his dreams and his visions, and Jude says, you're looking for a spiritual terrorist? Look for that checkbox. Somebody who is talking about God spoke to me and made me an authority that is over you, an authority that is greater than you by their dreams and visions. Now, what does the scripture say about this? I'll give you an Old Testament reference and then a New Testament one. Let's start with the Old Testament. It says, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, here we go, arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass. And if he says, let us go after other gods, 
which you have not known. Let us serve them. You see how this guy is trying to bring people away from God? You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice, and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Is that clear? I mean, how much clearer can it actually get? Even if this guy comes along, says, God spoke to me, and what he says comes true, you still kill him and get rid of him in the Old Testament times. He's trying to take you away from the Lord your God. Now, come to the New Testament times. Do we see similar things? Yes. Go to Colossians chapter 2. Let no one disqualify you. This is somebody's taking you away from Jesus, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels. And what are they doing? Going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. Oh, God is talking to me. God is giving me visions and telling me what we should do, what you should do. Paul says all they're going to do is disqualify you and pull you away from Jesus. It's a spiritual terrorist. Checkbox. When I was writing this week and just chewing on these verses, what kept coming to mind is a podcast that I've been listening to recently. This podcast is a behind-the-scenes look at a major pastor in the United States who had a really large church who went off the deep end. And one of the things you find in this podcast, you get to see what was going on behind the scenes and what this guy was actually like. And one of the things he frequently talked about is God spoke to me. God told me. Sometimes God told me to tell you. For instance, when asked about why he planted the church in that city, it was, well, God told me to start this church. And he told me I would be here for years. And then when the church folded and things were getting difficult and the pressure was on, he walked away. And people said, why could you just walk away? Well, God told me to walk away. How do you argue with that? His worship pastor one day said, why did you choose to hire me? as opposed to anyone else that you talk to. Well, and he said, well, because God told me to hire you. But then it turns around, it's like, well, and God told me to fire you. How do you argue with that? That's a checkbox of somebody who is a spiritual terrorist. Even in his counseling situations, I thought was interesting, he would sometimes counsel people and say, God told me to tell you what your sin is. Not confess your sin, and he will faithful and just to forgive us your sin, but I'm going to tell you what your sin is because God told me what it is. See, that's taking yourself, 
being presumptuous and putting yourself in a position of authority over others. It's the kind of thing that a spiritual terrorist does. The kind of person that ultimately leads you away from Jesus. And Jude says, you see that? Be very, very careful. The next thing Jude says is this. Spiritual terrorists will defile the flesh. Flesh is just the Greek word sarx. It means the body. Defile means to stain or pollute. So what this is defiling the flesh means that sexual immorality. Spiritual terrorists will always reveal themselves because they will be living sexually immoral lives. Instead of being controlled by the Holy Spirit and restrained by the Holy Spirit and displaying the fruit of the Holy Spirit, they'll be immoral. Now, this may not become apparent instantly, but the truth and time go hand in hand. Sexual immorality will ultimately be revealed in their life if it is not initially revealed in their life. We saw that, by the way, with the Exodus generation. I, I teased you about that a little bit. That when Moses went up Mount Sinai, eventually they made a calf. A golden calf. They sort of made a calf just like they had in Egypt. And then they started worshiping like they did in Egypt, which involved sexual immorality. And you're like, really? Let me show you in your outline. I put down here. It says, they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink. And then it says, and rose up to play. By the way, the Hebrew here does not mean they played with Legos. The Hebrew here is very graphic about living sexually loose and immoral lives. We saw that with the angels. Remember Genesis 6? The sons of God came into the daughters of men. We saw that in Sodom and Gomorrah. Let's go back to a modern day example. I started earlier to talk to you about Joseph Smith, the founder of the Mormon church. A guy whose authority comes from God spoke to me and I have visions and dreams so I can tell you what to do. Well, if Jude's right, he should also be living a very sexually immoral life because he's a spiritual terrorist, it would seem. What do you think? Was he living a sexually immoral life? Are the Mormons into polygamy? Maybe this afternoon when you go home and you have Google in front of you, just Google Joseph Smith wives. How many do you think he had? Let's make a guess. Three? A hundred? Less, but you're getting there. Sorry, Alan. You ruined everybody's guessing. I'll, I'll just tell you then. Fifty-one wives. That's crazy. He's not a man of God. He's a pervert. Quite honestly, that's what he is. And just like Jude said, you will see sexual immorality in a spiritual terrorist's life. That's how you recognize them. Another point. They reject authority. Spiritual terrorists will reject authority. The Exodus generation, they rejected Moses' authority. The angels, they rejected Jesus' authority in heaven. Sodom and Gomorrah, they rejected authority as well. We come back to Joseph Smith, founder of the Mormon church, spiritual terrorist. How did he handle authority over him? Not well. 
couple examples. And by the way, these aren't hard to find. Just go to Wikipedia and Google Joseph Smith, and you could read the same thing that I did. 1844, a paper called the Nauvoo Expositor wrote an article about him that was sort of unflattering and his polygamous relationships and his immorality with multiple women. And he responded by that by making sure that their printing presses and their buildings were burned to the ground. Oh, you don't like a little criticism, do you? A little bit of truth sort of hurt when it hits you between the eyes. So you reject that authority. Or you go a little bit later into their history. And all of a sudden it becomes apparent that because Joseph Smith has these visions and revelations that he's the source of authority in the Mormon church. So all of a sudden some of the other founders of the church, guys by the name of um, Oliver Cordroy or Hiram Page, they said, oh, God's speaking to us as well. We're having visions and we're having dreams. You should listen to us. Immediately after that, Joseph Smith has a vision, dream, or revelation where God tells him that he is the only one, he said, to be able to write scripture and create doctrine for the church. But God told me so. And then he takes those other founders and he sends them away on missionary journeys so there's nobody around who can possibly question his authority or be an authority over him. And Jude says, you see, it's another checkbox. That's how you find a modern-day spiritual terrorist. They do not want to have any authorities over them in their lives but themselves. I told you earlier about that podcast I've been listening to about a major church leader in the United States who fell. It's interesting. That same quality comes out in him. As he goes along, all of a sudden he gets to the point where he decides he doesn't want to have an elder board and authority over him. And he goes to change the bylaws to remove all the authority of the elders over him. That's not good. I may be the lead pastor of this church, but really I'm just one of the elders and the elders are in authority over me. And that's good and that's the way it should be. But a spiritual terrorist won't tolerate that. They don't like anybody challenging their leadership or questioning what they're doing. Or there's another situation in that podcast where it talks about his administrative assistant, who was a little bit older than he was, helping him out. Ended up at a, a party with some other ladies, and some of the ladies asked, what is it like to work with this major pastor and to be able to be an assistant for him? And just as a casual comment, the lady said, well, it's great, but I really think it would be good if he had some older and wiser pastors around him to help him. A week later, this pastor pulled that woman into his office and fired her on the spot. What was the charges? How dare you speak against me? Doesn't want to have anybody in authority over him. And that happened multiple times in his life. And Jude would say, those are the people you want to watch out for spiritual terrorists, a couple things. They're going to say, God told me, God spoke to me. Speak by their dreams. Number two, they're going to sit there and you're going to see sexual immorality. It will come out in their lives over time. And number three, they will not have anybody over them. They have to be completely in charge. Nobody can question their authority. When you see that, run. 
Now that brings us to our last point here, how we identify spiritual terrorists. And here is where the tough stuff really comes. It says this, spiritual terrorists blaspheme glorious ones. That sounds weird. What does that even mean? Who are the glorious ones? Blaspheme means to uh, be irreverent or show disrespect to those who are holy. Here's what I can best understand is going on here. These people, we've already seen, they're claiming that God speaks directly to them or that angels speak directly to them. But what we find is while they claim angels speak to them, Actually, what's going on is they are showing incredible disrespect and disdain for angels. So instead of being, uh, how would you call it, instead of being favored by angels, they're actually busy, Jude says, insulting angels. It's the exact opposite of what they claim. Now you may wonder, blaspheme glorious ones, how do you know that's angels? Why do you think it's angels? We talked about in the first week of our study that 2 Peter and Jude are very close to one another. 2 Peter was written really about one year before Jude was written. Same kind of message going on. Jude is like, watch out for the spiritual terrorists, they're coming. Or excuse me, 2 Peter is watch out for the spiritual terrorists, they're coming. Jude writes a year later, guess what? They are here. And 2 Peter says this in a very similar way to what's going on in the passage we're studying in Jude. He says, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion, that's sexual immorality, and despise authority, we've just covered that, bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, which is what we are looking at right now. And then he explains it further. Whereas angels though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. So, these spiritual terrorists speak against angels. They blaspheme and show irreverence toward angels. But Second Peter says, angels, even though they're much greater in might, much greater in power, wouldn't dare speak an evil thing against them when they speak to God. It's actually the opposite of what you would think is going on here. Now the question becomes, how do they blaspheme angels? How do they show we have reverence and disrespect toward angels? Well, we don't have a lot of details, so I'll do my best to tease that out. They may speak against evil or angels directly. Maybe they just insult them. I don't know. They may also speak against angels indirectly. What do I mean by that? I'll, I'll show you. Angels in the Old Testament had a very important role. See if you can sh see what this is. Deuteronomy 33, verse 2. He said, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned from Mount Seir upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came with the ten thousands of the holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. This is talking about Mount Sinai. When Moses was there, he had an angelic army with him when the Lord came down. So you have the Lord, 
Moses and 10,000 of his holy ones. You go to Psalm 68, verse 17. The chariots of God are twice 10,000, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them. And what does it say? Sinai is now in the sanctuary. The idea being that when um, the Lord comes down to Mount Sinai, once again we see 10,000 of his holy ones. The angels are there. And what were the angels doing on Mount Sinai? You get to the New Testament and you find out. Acts chapter 7, verse 53. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. The angels on Mount Sinai were delivering God's law to Moses. Find the same thing in Hebrews. Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? So God's law, his moral law, was given on Mount Sinai through angels. They were the intermediaries who gave it. Think what's going on. We have these spiritual terrorists claiming that God is speaking to them. God is directing them. And that angels are speaking to them. Angels are directing them. And what are these angels supposedly telling them to do? Justifying their sexual immorality. Justifying their rejection of authority. And Jude says, no, no. Angels weren't speaking to you. Because the last time we know that angels did speak directly to man, like we're talking Mount Sinai, they gave God's law. And God's law was about holiness. One of the Ten Commandments is, you shall not commit adultery. So I don't know who was speaking to you, but I'll tell you, it wasn't angels, Jude says. I think you're making it all up in your head. That's what he's saying here. Now, let me look at this. Just because this is a little bit difficult, he tries to figure things out, and he tries to explain this a little better. He goes to verse 9, this point of blaspheming glorious ones. He gives an example. The archangel Michael, contending with Satan for the body of Moses, is an example of angelic humility. Verse 9. And when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to renounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Now, if you're reading that, you're going, I've read my Old Testament, but I don't remember a time when the archangel Michael was contending with the devil for the body of Moses. It's just not in there. Deuteronomy 34, we find that um, the Lord buried Moses in the Moab Valley, and nobody knows where he's buried. Where did this story come from? Well, it's not in the Bible. An early Christian writer named Origen tells us that it's found in a book called The Assumption of Moses. This is a not-biblical book. But Jude chooses to quote that book. And some of you may instantly go, well, wait a minute. Does this mean we should be including the book The Assumption of Moses in our Bibles? Absolutely not. 
I put this for you in your outline. When Jude quotes from a book that is not part of our Bible, that doesn't mean the book should become part of our Bible. In fact, all over the Bible, we find biblical writers quoting from non-biblical books just what they quote is inspired by God, not the book they quote from. So Jude's point is he's talking about how spiritual terrorists are. They like to criticize angels. And at the very least, we know they criticize God's law about holiness and sexual holiness. When the reality is, angels, who are much greater in might and power, wouldn't even dare criticize them. And then he says, by the way, like in the book of the Assumption of Moses, look at this, when the archangel Michael who is the head of the angelic armies, was contending with Satan, the worst of the fallen angels for Moses' body, even at that time, Michael did not speak a blasphemous word against him. Yet here are these people speaking blasphemously and irreverently about angels. In fact, all Michael said was simply, let the Lord rebuke you, not me. Incidentally, uh, Michael could have rebuked him. We find in Revelation chapter 12 this. Now war arose in heaven. Michael and the angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. So Michael's already beat Satan. He kicked him out of heaven. But yet he still in this contending wouldn't speak a blasphemous word against him. Yet these men have no problem insulting angels and no problem insulting God's moral good law, which is the one thing that was given to us, we know, by angels. This is why he ends look with these, this comment. But these people blaspheme all they do not understand. They're destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. So this morning we saw there are really four ways that we can spot a spiritual terrorist among us. The last of which is the hardest one. But it's this. Their dreams and visions they claim are from God or their conversations with God, they are the source of authority in their life, not the word of God. Just like Joseph Smith did, remember the founder of the Mormon church? The other thing is we can recognize them by this. They will live a sexually immoral and loose life. That's what spiritual terrorists will always do. Number three, they will despise authority over them. They're always an authority unto themselves. That's what a spiritual terrorist always does. And lastly, they will disrespect angels, in particular by disrespecting and rejecting God's moral law. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for your word how it tells us how we can recognize and identify spiritual terrorists, people who slip in among us, who dress in plain clothes, people who look just like you and me and everybody else, but people who are determined to destroy us and pull us away from Jesus. Thank you for your word, which tells us how to identify these kinds of people and to be able to call them out and know that we should not follow them on their destructive way. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us.
and may God continue to enrich your life.